chapter three of thomas hobbs by alfred edward taylor this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three empirical psychology the nature of man we may now proceed to consider main outlines of the analysis of cognition and volition which has earned for hobbes the well-merited title of founder of empirical psychology that chief contribution of the english-speaking peoples to mental science this analysis will be found by the english reader most fully set forth in two works the human nature the first part of the treatise on the elements of law originally composed in sixteen forty and the opening chapters of leviathan published in sixteen fifty one we must bear in mind however that hobbes is chiefly interested in the psychology of the individual mind less for its own sake than because it furnishes him with a logical foundation for his naturalistic doctrine of ethics and politics his psychology is consequently only worked out so far as is necessary for the achievement of this ulterior end hobbes as we have seen does not attempt to deduce the principles of psychology let alone these of ethics and politics from the general doctrine of motion but falls back upon our immediate experience of the main facts of human nature as we find them in ourselves he is so to speak an empiricist malgre lui and it is one of the entertaining ironies of history that the english philosopher who of all others is most strongly insistent upon the deductive character of genuine science should be chiefly remembered by that part of his work which is most flagrantly inconsistent with his own conception of strictly scientific method from the axiom that neither within nor without is there any reality but motion there is in truth no road to moral and political science hobbes starts in his doctrine of man from the usual empiricist assumption that all mental life is a development from beginnings in sensation for there is no conception in a man's mind which hath not at first totally or by parts been begotten upon the organs of sense the rest are derived from that original leviathan one hundred one sensation as we have seen is according to him a motion caused in these organs by previous motion in some external body why the sensible qualities thus begotten are supposed to belong to external bodies he explains by the theory that all sensation gives rise to motor reaction from the heart which he like the aristotelians regards as the centre of the nervous system towards the periphery of the body it is the outward flowing direction of these reactions which causes sensible objects to appear without us a crude version of the now seriously discredited doctrine of feelings of innervation he immediately adds a doctrine of the relativity of sensation sensation requires a constant variety of stimuli persistent exposure to an unvarying stimulus would readily give rise to total unconsciousness it being almost one for a man to be always sensible of one and the same thing and not to be sensible at all of anything concerning body twenty five five that is consciousness depends upon contrast from sensation hobbes goes on next to derive imagination and memory imagination is simply decaying sense that is the persistence in a less intense form of the organic process excited by a stimulus after the stimulus itself has been withdrawn 
this persistence itself again is a consequence of what newton was afterwards to call the first law of motion when a body is once in motion it moveth unless something else hinder it eternally and whatsoever hindereth it cannot in an instant but in time and by degrees quite extinguish it and as we see in the water though the winds cease the waves give not over rolling for a long time after so also it happeneth in that motion which is made in the internal parts of a man then when he sees dreams etc for after the object is removed or the eyes shut we still retain an image of the thing seen though more obscure than when we see it imagination therefore is nothing but decaying sense leviathan one hundred two how in the general subjectivity of all sensation we are to know whether the object has really been withdrawn or not is a problem which hobbes would scarcely have found it easy to solve memory is now explained to be simply imagination of what is past when we would express the decay and signify that the sense is fading old and past it is called memory so that imagination and memory are but one thing which for divers considerations hath divers names Ibid. it is clear that we are here again confronted by a difficulty which hobbes's superficial appeals to physical analogies cannot conceal for imagination is by no means exclusively of things past we can imagine our future as readily as we can remember our past and we often divert ourselves by imagining a state of things which neither has existed nor will ever exist now how do we come to make these distinctions between different imaginations if imagination and memory are merely two names for the same thing looked at from two different points of view why is not all imagination indistinguishable from reminiscence in other words what a psychological analysis of memory ought to account for is not the mere fact that we can imagine what is actually past but the fact that in doing so we recognize the events imagined as belonging to the past and not to the future or to no time at all the secret of hobbes's failure to give any satisfactory account of memory is not hard to find and it is also the secret of much more that is defective in his psychological analysis what must happen to any really consistent sensationalist in psychology has happened to him in his derivation of mental life from passively received sensations he has forgotten the presence of selective attention as an ever-present factor which actively determines the course of all mental processes it is only when we have learned to distinguish that from which attention is turning away from that towards which it is moving that we acquire a basis for the distinction between imagination of what is no longer and imagination of what is not yet hobbes next advances to the analysis of complex trains of thought leviathan one hundred three he begins by laying down the general doctrine of association of ideas giving a crude account of the psychophysical dependence of the process upon the formation of paths of conduction in the nervous system and recognizing association by contiguity more explicitly than association by resemblance though the latter is not entirely overlooked when a man thinketh on anything whatsoever his next thought after is not altogether so casual as it seems to be not every thought to every thought succeeds indifferently but we have no transition from one imagination to another whereof we never had the like before in our senses the reason whereof is this all fancies are motions within us 
relics of those made in the sense and those motions that immediately succeeded one another in the sense continue also together after sense insomuch as the former coming again to take place and to be predominant the later followeth by coherence of the matter moved he distinguishes however between mere random association and thought guided or regulated by the presence of a definite end or purpose which controls the formation of associations for example the orderly thinking out of a series of steps towards the gratification of a given desire this latter ought really to present a difficulty to him since it most obviously involves the presence of purposive attention as actively determining the current of thought and leading to sequences in imagination quite independent of previous sequences in our senses and it seems manifest that such attention cannot be analyzed into a mere succession of subjective effects of physical stimuli on hobbes's theory as on any theory which treats association as more than a subordinate factor in determining the course of thought whenever we think of a given thing a our next thought should be of a thing b which is either very like a or has been most commonly perceived or thought of in close connection with a in actual fact in proportion as our thinking is truly rational or as hobbes would say regulated the b which the thought of a calls up is that which it is most relevant to our present object to think of next and this b may be something quite unlike a and something which has never been thought of in this particular connection with a before it is really only unregulated random thinking which is dominated by association in an orderly train of purposive thinking association appears as often as not as a disturbing factor and source of pure irrelevance hobbes now proceeds leviathan one hundred six to a similar analysis of voluntary motions that is the whole conative side of mental life like most pre-kantian psychologists he reckons feeling and emotion among the forms of conation conation is in every case nothing but incipient motion within the nervous system and such incipient outward directed reaction hobbes calls by the general name endeavour endeavour again has two contrasted directions it is either endeavour to or from a perceived object the words to and from being understood quite literally of direction in space endeavour towards an object is what we call appetite or desire endeavour from an object is called aversion other names for the two directions of endeavour are love and hate because going speaking and the like voluntary motions depend always upon a precedent thought of whither which way and what it is evident that the imagination is the first internal beginning of all voluntary motions and although unstudied men do not conceive any motion at all to be there where the thing moved is invisible or the space it is moved in is for the shortness of it insensible yet that doth not hinder but that such motions are these small beginnings of motion within the body of man before they appear in walking speaking striking and other visible actions are commonly called endeavour this endeavour when it is toward something which causes it is called appetite or desire and when endeavour is fromward something it is generally called aversion 
that which men desire they are also said to love and to hate those things from which they have aversion so that desire and love are the same thing save that by desire we always signify the absence of the object by love most commonly the presence of the same so also by aversion we signify the absence and by hate the presence of the object ibid one hundred six whatever is the object of appetite or desire to a man he calls good whatever is the object of aversion he calls evil hence since the desires of different men and even of the same man at different times are very various good and evil are purely relative terms and there can be no common measure of them except in civil society where they are determined by the command of the ruler hence again the absolute necessity for the civil sovereign and his laws if moral anarchy is to be avoided these words are ever used with relation to the person that useth them there being nothing simply and absolutely so nor any common rule of good and evil to be taken from the nature of the objects themselves but from the person of the man when there is no commonwealth or in a commonwealth from the person that representeth it or from an arbitrator or judge whom men disagreeing shall by consent set up and make his sentence the rule thereof leviathan one hundred six in other words there is no such thing as a moral law equally binding upon all persons except in an organized political community and in such a community itself what we call the moral law is a consequence a reflex in the consciousness of the individual man of the habit of obedience to the commands of a political ruler it follows from this purely naturalistic conception of the primary meaning of the words good and evil that of the voluntary acts of every man the object is some good to himself ibid one hundred fourteen the proposition is in fact tautologous since according to hobbes's definition of good good means what a man desires and as we are to see immediately his psychology is unable to draw any real distinction between desire or appetite and volition thus on the ground that the object of a man's desire is the object of his desire hobbes bases the conclusion that all voluntary action is in the last resort purely egoistic though it appears that the good at which an action aims may in some cases be the suppression of the pain we feel at the sight of another person's suffering and room is thus made for a limited and rather inferior kind of benevolence it should further be noted that hobbes oddly confounds pleasure and pain with the consciousness of appetite and of aversion respectively a gross blunder in analysis which is forced on him by the necessity of bringing all features of our mental life under one of the two heads cognition and motor impulse similarly he is obliged to falsify his analysis of deliberation and volition deliberation is nothing more than a succession of alternating impulses or appetites towards and from the same object when in the mind of man appetites and aversions hopes and fears concerning one and the same thing arise alternately and divers good and evil consequences of the doing or omitting the thing propounded come successively into our thoughts so that sometimes we have an appetite towards it sometimes an aversion from it the whole sum of desires aversions hopes and fears continued till the thing be either done or thought impossible is that we call deliberation leviathan one hundred six it follows of course that deliberation is no prerogative of man but common to him with the brutes 
will is simply the last member of this series the appetite or aversion which immediately precedes the visible bodily reaction the last appetite or aversion immediately adhering to the action or to the omission thereof is that we call the will and beasts that have deliberation must necessarily also have will Ibid from the definition of good and evil it follows that hobbes adopts a purely and crudely determinist view on the question of free will a man inevitably aims at that which at the moment appears good to himself in fact all that we mean by saying that it appears good to him is that he does so aim at it hobbes's essay on liberty and necessity still remains one of the clearest and most forcible statements of the case for this kind of rigid determinism against any admission of contingency or genuine freedom in human action this whole theory of volition obviously suffers from grave psychological defects which in their turn lead to equally grave ethical and sociological errors the secret source of hobbes's worst mistakes in ethical theory must be sought in the absurd inadequacy of his analysis of deliberation from the standpoint of a really thorough psychology nothing can be more ludicrous than his confusion of rational deliberation with a mere see-saw of conflicting animal impulses rational deliberation as distinguished from mere hesitation implies the successive examination of alternative possibilities of action with a preconceived plan or purpose which is already fixed in its main outlines but receives further special determination as to its details by each of these successive comparisons the final selection of one of the alternatives as the line to be followed is an act totally different in its psychical character from the blind translation into overt movement of an irrational impulse hence it is that we can actually desire what we do not will and will much that we do not desire thus we find in hobbes's account of volition precisely the same blindness to the importance of selective attention which we had found in his analysis of cognition this has a further most momentous consequence for his ethical and social doctrine from the identification of volition with mere animal appetite it follows that civilization can provide us with no new objects of volition it can merely increase our command over the means of gratifying desires which remain identical with those of the savage or supply additional motives such as for example fear of the police or the gallows strong enough to check the gratification of such desires we are all still savages at heart though we are better informed than the savage as to the probable consequences of gratifying our appetites and have also contrived to attach artificially various new unpleasant consequences to the gratification of some of them not of course that hobbes was himself ethically on the level of a savage the acquisition of a rational comprehension of life to which hobbes's labours were so unremittingly devoted is itself an object of desire impossible to a mere savage but for such objects his crude psychological analysis has provided no place it is a direct consequence of this analysis and at the same time the real foundation of his whole 
moral and social theory that competition for objects of desire which can only be enjoyed by one man on the condition that all others are prevented from enjoying them is still as it always has been the law of human life and that this competition will always make ordered society impossible unless there is a ruler with the admitted right to set limits to it and the power to enforce his regulations by penalties however strongly some of the facts of the period of revolution through which england was passing during hobbes's manhood might suggest such a conception it should be manifest to a dispassionate student of human history that it does inf infinitely less than justice to the extent to which as civilization advances the objects of human desire become more and more of a non-competitive kind or of a kind which are positively unattainable by one man except on the condition of their equal attainment by his fellows hobbes develops these portentous ethical consequences of his psychology in much detail in the eleventh and thirteenth chapters of leviathan the supreme aim of every man is to obtain power that is an assured command over the means of future gratification of desire the reason why this passion persists so obstinately throughout life being not so much that man is never content with the degree of satisfaction he has already attained as the uncertainty whether he will continue to retain it undiminished in the first place i put for a general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire of power after power that ceaseth only in death and the cause of this is not always that a man hopes for a more intensive delight or that he cannot be content with a moderate power but because he cannot assure the power and means to live well which he hath present without the acquisition of more leviathan one hundred eleven now hobbes also holds that there is no great natural difference between one man and another either in physical or mental capacity as to the strength of body the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest either by secret machination or by confederacy with others that are in the same danger with himself and as to the faculties of the mind i find yet a greater equality amongst men than that of strength Ibid, consequently the natural state of man that is the condition into which he is born and in which he remains so far as he does not artificially put an end to it by the creation of a political system is one of universal competition or as hobbes who likes to give his ideas the most startling and provocative wording phrases it one of war of every man against every man in which there is no moral law since the recognition of moral law is only possible among men living in civil society and respecting their mutual rights and duties to this war of every man against every man this also is consequent that nothing can be unjust the notions of right and wrong justice and injustice have there no place where there is no common power there is no law where no law no injustice force and fraud are in war the two cardinal virtues it is consequent also to the same condition that there be no propriety that is property no dominion no mine and thine distinct but only that to be every man's that he can get and for so long as he can get keep it Ibid. this state of universal anarchy we must remember is not in the least hobbes's ideal as it has sometimes been falsely represented to be by unscrupulous controversialists on the contrary he abhors it and is at great pains to point out its horrors 
so long as it lasts there can be no settled industry or commerce no science no arts or letters and which is worst of all continuous fear and danger of violent death and the life of man solitary poor nasty brutish and short Ibid. the salvation of man in fact as we shall see depends on the fact that though nature has placed him in so evil a condition she has also endowed him with a possibility to come out of it whatever we may think of hobbes's analysis of human nature it must not be forgotten for a moment that its object is not the repudiation of law and morality but the vindication of them as the only safeguards against general anarchy and misery in proof of the correctness of the dark picture thus drawn of what human life would be without a firmly established political authority to protect men against one another and against their own anti-social appetites hobbes appeals one to the actual condition of savages two to the absence of all moral restraint shown in the mutual relations of independent states who have no common superior towards each other and three with special reference to the calumniators who charged him with a desire to undermine the authority of the existing moral law to the precautions which men take against one another even in settled and civilized states he thus fairly retorts that he only puts into words what is implied in the conduct of his critics themselves when they bar their chests lock their doors or carry arms when on a journey hobbes's account of the state of nature is of course as is shown in particular by the seventeenth chapter of leviathan expressly intended to contradict the doctrine of aristotle revived and made popular in his own time by the famous work of grotius de jure belli et pacis that man is naturally a political animal that is that the rudiments of sociability and social organization are never absent from any group of human beings living together this implies contrary to hobbes's psychological analysis that human impulses are not exclusively egoistic so hobbes reverts to a notion ultimately derived from the old greek sophists who taught that morality is the result of convention the notion that mankind originally existed in a state of nature which was one of sheer lawlessness and that all settled morality is the result of habituation to obedience to political rules which must have been originally set up by voluntary agreement or contract it is easy to point out that hobbes exaggerates the extent to which morality is a mere effect of civil obedience and to show in the light of later research that even savages who have no settled political organization really possess a rudimentary morality based on traditional tribal custom it is equally true that he exaggerates the defects even of the seventeenth century when he maintains that independent nations recognize no moral restrictions whatever in their dealings with their neighbors yet his reflections on the character of international morality as well as on the precautions taken even by the citizen of a law-abiding community against his fellows retain even to-day a great deal of unpleasant significance we are after all in many things nearer the savage than we like to think and it is well that we should not be allowed to forget the fact and it is at least an important part of the truth that our moral codes are too largely merely the effect of unreasoned acquiescence in long-established custom while there can be no doubt that hobbes is much nearer the truth 
than the sentimental writers before and after him who have glorified the relatively lawless condition of the pre-civilized man as a golden age of superior innocence or virtue and there is an element of truth in hobbes's polemic against aristotle's conception of the way in which the family has widened into the village community and the village community into the city or nation by a process of peaceful expansion we know enough now of the steps by which historical greece came into existence to be sure that what lay behind the formation of the greek polis was more often than not invasion conquest massacre and the anarchy produced by the violent subversion of older settled morality if we abandon the empty dream of ever discovering historical information as to the primitive condition of mankind and content ourselves with the more modest question what state of things preceded the growth of that which we call western civilization whether hellenic or germanic we shall find that hobbes has after all given us a large part though not the whole of the truth especially if we take his picture with his own qualifying remark that it was never generally so all over the world and that his prime purpose is not to write ancient history but to show by philosophical analysis what manner of life there would be where there were no common power to fear by the manner of life which men that have formerly lived under a peaceful government use to degenerate into a civil war leviathan one hundred thirteen end of chapter three